Thank you, and if you'll turn in your Bibles, please, to John chapter 16. We're going to begin here with the 16th verse. We've already read the Scripture there in our Scripture reading this morning. And uh, so let me just introduce that section here, because Jesus earlier, in back in verse number 12, had said, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. The idea of bearing them is they wouldn't be able not only to not understand them, but if they could understand them, they would not be able to really take them in. They wouldn't be able to really bear them. So now in verse number 16, he addresses this concern. This is the concern now that he, that's before him. He announced that he was returning to the Father. And this announcement caused great disappointment and grief. They're sad. They've been with Christ now for three some years. And uh, when now he's telling them he's leaving them, and they feel like they've been orphaned. They've been deserted. They're troubled and grieving. And that grief here is driving their thoughts and their behavior. Even uh, Peter's proud and boastful, uh, Lord, although they, everybody leaves you, I'll never leave you. I'll even die for you. And as Peter uh, was saying those things in self-confidence, as self-confident boasting, Jesus said, no, Peter, I'm going to tell you that before the rooster crows in the morning, you will have denied me three times. In fact, all of the disciples are going to desert Jesus that very night. So now he's, he's ta- talking to them and he's preparing them for, for that time when the Holy Spirit is going to be given to them on Pentecost and it's going to revolutionize their whole approach as it ought to revolutionize you and I's approach to our Christian experience. They simply could not and would not understand now what was happening to them and the disciples' inability to bear the things of Christ uh, lay in the fact that they had no framework here to reconcile their notion, their understanding of the Messiah that included his rejection, death, and departure to make way for another helper. Helper, Their, their vision of Messiah was he's going to come out of nowhere riding on his white horse, conquering to conquer, and that he's going to establish the kingdom of God on earth, and they'll never, uh, and that, that, that'll be forever. So now when he is, and they, they recognize you are the Messiah, and now he's telling them he's going away, and he's going back to the Father, and they said, this doesn't compute. It doesn't fit our scheme. This is not, we, did not, we don't understand this. So Jesus approached the problem then by provoking their thinking. That's why he starts out with this very enigmatic statement. There in uh, verse number 16, A little while and you will see me, and uh, no longer. And yet again, in a little while and you will see me. What does that mean? What does that mean? 
They couldn't understand the purpose of God. Nevertheless, they needed this instruction to prepare them for what they were going to be facing. In the age of joy. There's no joy in them right now. (laughs) There's anything but joy. But Jesus said, guys, listen to me. I'm going away, and because I'm going away, there's I'm issuing in, I'm ushering in a new age. It's going to be an age of joy. And it'll be also be the age of the spirit. This glorious truth then is brought in the conclusion there in verse 33 of this chapter. I have said these things to you that in me. Listen, in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Take heart. I have overcome the world. See, this is the whole, the whole situation. He began by saying, they, the world, this world has hated me. They're going to hate you in the same way. We live in a nation that has enjoyed respite from tribulation and from persecution. We've enjoyed prosperity such as the world has never known. But get ready, folks. It's coming. And it may be sooner than we imagine. But the truth of Scripture cannot be broken. They hated Jesus. They'll hate you if you're a follower of Jesus. I saw an interesting meme that talked about the persecuted folks in China and how they're suffering. But they're going to testify to Jesus anyway. And the folks in India who are being persecuted, some killed and slaughtered, and, and the dangerous situation that they faced. But they're going to they're gonna testify to, to Jesus anyway. And folks in Africa that have watched their families killed and their homes robbed and thrown out to wander alone. And they've said, well, we're going to stand for Jesus anyway. And then in America, when we get a little persecution, it's, well, I don't feel real good about this. I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. That's, what we're, that's where we are. This world is fast descending into fear and confusion. And God's people will have to take a stand. But God guarantees us that when we take that stand, there will be peace and joy and confidence and resolve in that stand to stay true as we share Christ and His victory over the world. In the text here before us, it continues the implications of the world's hatred of Christ and His followers there According to verse number 18, persecution is difficult, but Jesus promises joy. He said there in verse 11, 
These things have I spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Do you have joy this morning? Are you filled with the joy of the Lord? The practical benefit of trials for Christ followers is strength. So we read there in Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 10. That's an, that's an amazing book. I would encourage you to go back and read the book of, of Nehemiah again. And think about that, that in these terms. But in Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 10, we read, The joy of the Lord shall be your strength. With their opposition, strong opposition against them. Nehemiah encouraged the people, the joy of the Lord shall be your strength. Matthew Henry, in his commentary, wrote, The joy of the Lord will arm us against the assaults of our spiritual enemies and put our mouths out of taste for those pleasures with which the tempter baits his hooks. I like that. When we experience the joy of the Lord, the temptation of this world seems to diminish. Joy fortifies courage in the face of danger. It protects the soul against the world and the flesh and the devil. Richard Baxter, an early Puritan, prayed, May the living God, who is the portion and rest of the saints, make these our carnal minds so spiritual and our earthly hearts so heavenly that loving Him and delighting in Him may be the work of our lives. So let's look at this. The first thing I notice here is the prospect for joy. And we see that in verses 16 through 22. Verse 16 is a transitional verse as Jesus here turns from introducing the age of the Spirit to focus on the sorrow of the disciples. So he asked this kind of a enigmatic question. A little while and you will see me uh, no longer. And again a little while and you will see me. Some manuscripts, in fact the King James Version, has additional words there. Because I am going to the Father. I think the reason that those words were added was to help the reader to understand the following verse where the disciples uh, asked the question, where is he going and what does he mean by I'm going to the Father? So the original statement there, is, however, is quite puzzling. What departure, what return is it referred to? A little while. And I would argue that if you just think about it for a minute, and that's, I think, what Jesus was trying to do. He was trying to provoke the disciples to think. Stop feeling. Start thinking. We live in a culture of feeling. I don't feel right. I don't, I don't, you don't make me feel good. I don't feel, feel, feel. I, we don't need to feel. We need to think. So, uh, what was he talking about? And I, and I believe if you just think about it a little bit, you would understand. A little while does mark the proximity of Christ's death. In a little while, he's going to die. In fact, it's going to occur that night. 
he's going to be arrested, which will begin the process of his being put on the cross the next day. A little while. And then a little while you will see me again, I think, marks the resurrection. But some commentators, I think, maybe to confuse the issue, have uh, uh, interpreted the words as having a double meaning. And they, they may, and I'm not going to argue with that, but uh, you, you will see me referring both to his resurrection and his second coming. And that might be the case as well. But I think for the sake of our understanding of the passage, it's just simply better to consider the fact that he's telling them, I'm going to leave you in a little while, and then in a little while I'm coming right back. I'm going to come right back. And that's the resurrection. The disciples were not able to process a concept of a Messiah who would leave them. See, that's the point. Their understanding is Messiah is here and he's here to stay. And we're just waiting for him to overthrow the Romans and to establish the throne of David and to rule and bring in the kingdom of God on Mount Zion. Yet have I set my king on Zion, my holy so a messiah that leaves that just doesn't compute doesn't compute and even if he were raised from the dead he certainly would not be taken away to join the father in glory yeah so if he died fine but he would be raised from the dead yes but still, he wouldn't leave us. But Jesus said, I'm going to the Father. That presents the next problem. And they didn't have a reference to understand that Jesus was going to have a replacement. The Holy Spirit. The paraclete who would come and help him here on earth in the lives of the disciples. So Jesus' goal then, in this perplexing statement, was to provoke the disciples to think about his words, which they did, asking each other what he meant, there in verse number 17. Their perplexity centered on the words a little while, what was Jesus talking about? Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. They're talking among themselves. I, I, I kind of... That, it's always kind of interesting. We see that several times in the life of Christ. The disciples are kind of talking among themselves, mumbling, and they're not say, really saying anything to Jesus. And Jesus is saying, what is it you guys want to ask me? <laughs> why, do you, why are you mumbling these things to yourselves? Why don't you just come out with it and, and, and talk to me? But what uh, I really think that they needed to understand was their own attitude which was central to the truth that he sought to develop in preparing them for what they were about to face. God knows how to prepare his people for what they will face. We fear facing the unknown. God is sovereign. He knows what's going to take place tomorrow. And he knows how to best prepare you 
to face it. Trust Him. Trust Him. So Jesus explained then with an assertive, I tell you the truth. Or I I like the King James here, verily, verily. These two verilies says, sit up, listen up. I'm about to give you a truth statement that you need to hear and receive it. And it signifies here the importance of that statement. It would be Jesus' resurrection that would turn their grief into joy. And indeed, John documents this in John chapter 20, verse 20. When Jesus appeared to the disciples, we read, the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. You're going to have joy when you see me. And he acknowledged that the disciples then would weep and mourn. And those those terms, weeping and mourning there, are used almost exclusively in death settings. Because Jesus of Jesus' impending death, but their having... Uh, Sorrow would be just a temporary situation. They would sorrow for just a little while. A little while. They would rejoice. A little while, I'm going to be gone. And then a little while, I'm coming back. A little while, you're going to grieve my departure. But again, in a little while, you're going to have joy in seeing me again. See, this is the point. And while they're grieving, the world will be rejoicing because they got rid of Jesus. But what are they going to do when Jesus comes back again? (laughs) He illustrates their situation then comparing it here to a woman uh, in birth labor. The pain of her travail, as awful as it is to experience, would soon be forgotten in the joy of her newborn child. That's verse 21. That's a common theme for the Old Testament. For example, in Isaiah chapter 66, I won't read the whole passage, but verses 7 through 14, before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered her son. Who has heard of such a thing? And so on. And so, uh, a nation being born in a day. But this is what uh, the disciples were now going to experience themselves. So the illustration then was applied to verse number 22 to the disciples' present distress. After Jesus was raised, he said, I will see you again. And the disciples would rejoice with a joy that couldn't be taking away, taken away. So in verse uh, chapter 30 and verse, excuse me, Psalm 30 and verse 5, we read, Weeping may tarry for the night. But joy comes in the morning. So this is what the Spirit wants for all the people of God. Do you have joy? Are you rejoicing? Are you daily rejoicing? Joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Do you have the Holy Spirit? Is He in you? Are you being 
filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul says, be ye filled with the Holy Spirit. What Paul means by that is, it's not it's not a one-time a sudden experience that we're going to, you know, kind of an ecstatic experience. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is a daily need. Be ye being continually filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Holy Spirit means that he's in control. Because Paul said, don't be drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And the comparison is that wine controls you. People who've had a lot of wine are controlled by that wine. Or liquor, whatever it is that they drink. Paul said, don't be, don't be controlled by liquor. A lot of people drink to, to uh, take away their sorrow and their trials and their difficulties and their problems. That was true in Paul's day and it's true in ours. So Paul said, instead, as a believer in Jesus Christ who has the Holy Spirit of God, let Him control you. Be continually controlled by the Holy Spirit of God. And that's what Jesus is emphasizing here to them. Yes, you're going to suffer for a little while. But when, when I'm raised from the dead... You're going to rejoice. And when, when you begin, the Spirit of God comes upon you and you begin to, to really experience what it is to be filled with the Holy Spirit, He is going to give you the joy of the Lord and that will never be taken away from you. The fruit of the Spirit is joy, is love, joy, peace, patience, and so forth. So joy is a result of obedience, however. Obedience. We, we give our lives over to Jesus Christ. We walk in His ways. We do the things that are pleasing in His sight. And when we do, we have the joy of the Lord. So we read there in, again, the psalmist. Uh, Psalm 16, verse 11 says, You make known to me the path of life. You make known to me the path of life. You make known to me where I ought to walk and how I ought to walk in it. And in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God lays out the path. His people obediently walk the path. And the result is the fullness of joy in His presence. Do you have that? See, that's the point. Do you have that? Tragically, Moses understood in the beginning that Israel would fail in their obedience to, the, to this walk in this path of life. So he writes there in Deuteronomy 28, verses 47 and 48, because you did not, I mean, this is in the beginning, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart. Because of the abundance of all things, therefore you shall Serve your enemies, whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst and nakedness and lacking everything. And He will put a yoke of iron on your neck until you, until He has destroyed you. Wow. What a way to start the national expectation. And the implication... Here is it's the severe persecution of the world. And that's the point. 
In this world, you will have persecution. You, you're going to have it. And, and the implication of it is that in this persecution of the world, the believers would not be robbed of the joy of the Lord as they serve the Lord in the power of the Spirit. But tell you what, the persecutors ne- cannot understand that. In China, when the per- when severe persecution came on there, they watched the disciples rejoicing in the Lord. And they, it's, that, it doesn't make any sense. Ah, but it makes all, every sense. Why do most many believers today not experience this joy as promised? Observe the wording of the promise. No one will take your joy away from you. No one will take your joy away from you. When you love and serve Jesus Christ, According to verse 22, your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. You hear that? So you say, well, wait a minute. Why don't I have joy? The reason for many not having the the joy of the Lord is that they're not walking in the path of life, serving the Lord in His will. And the... their problem is the, their focus is not Jesus. Their focus is self. What's happening to me? Their lack of joy should warn them of their error. When you're not having the joy of the Lord, you should be asking yourself, what am I doing? What is self? What of self is standing in the way? On the other hand, their fullness of joy should assure them of their right relationship with Christ. Jesus assured the disciples that nothing could take their joy. That is, nothing except the believer himself. No one can take your joy from you, but you can. Self is the greatest enemy of joy in the believer's life. So let's Consider then the mutual benefit of that joy. You see this in verse number 23. Jesus discussed here the mechanics of joy and its maintenance. In that day, after Jesus was risen and ascended and the Holy Spirit was given, you will no longer ask me anything. That's an interesting statement here. What do you mean? See, they've just asked him. They're talking among themselves and Jesus turns around and says, you guys want to ask me something? (laughs) What do you mean by this yet a little while? And now Jesus is telling them, after I have been raised and after I have ascended to the Father's right hand and after the Holy Spirit has been sent to you, He comes upon you there on the day of Pentecost, you will no longer ask me anything. What? Now that's an enigmatic statement. Because I tell you what, I've asked the Lord a lot of things. <laughs> what does he mean by that? It's the term ask here that's interesting. And the reason is because while Jesus was on earth, the disciples could ask him directly about 
about things. In fact, that's what they did. What do you mean by a little while? Now, I'm going to get a little technical here because the verse contains two words for that are translated here to ask. In the first instance, it means to seek information. And in, I believe what he's saying here, you no longer need to ask me anything. It means that there not be a situation in which you cannot get information. The Holy Spirit of God guides His people into all truth. Sometimes our problem is we're just not pursuing the truth. We're not interested in finding out what the truth is. Get in the book. Get in the scriptures. Read the scriptures. When the scriptures don't make sense to you, lean on the Holy Spirit of God to guide you into all truth. I've said this many times and I'll say it again. The more I read the Bible, and I've read the Bible through many times, and every time I read it through, it opens up more and more and more. And it's not because of my abilities. It's because the Spirit of God is the author of that book, and He's the teacher of that book, and He wants you to know what is in that book. So Jesus said, you're not going to, you won't need to ask any longer. Why? Because the Holy Spirit of God is going to be there to guide you into all truth. It's not going to come suddenly and right away. I mean, it's not that you're going to be suddenly have all knowledge. But while the disciples were on earth, they could ask him directly. But the time was coming, they would not be able to do that. So they would not need for that because they would truly know. That's an interesting. There in 1 John chapter 2, verse 20, it says, but you have, an, have been anointed by the Holy One. That's the Holy Spirit. And you have all knowledge. You know, I, when I read that the first time, I said, Lord, I don't understand that because I don't have all knowledge. But wait a minute. The potential is there. When I continue to live for Him and depend on Him, and as He continues to guide me into all truth, there's nothing that I cannot know that He wants me to know. And the same for you. That... So, however, then at that time they would they would need to ask the Father in His name. Now, here, see, you're going to need to ask the Father in My name. This word is a different word. The first is to to inquire of something. The second is to petition. It's something you don't have, so you ask for it. This is a powerful truth. What they desire would be given to them when they asked in prayer. How much do you pray? See, the joy of the Lord is directly connected to this matter of praying too. Definitely. 
The Lord delights to answer prayer. And when the request furthers the will of God, and when the will of God is being is the objective, then he says, you will receive that your joy may be full. That's verse 24. Sometimes you say, well, I asked the Lord for something and he didn't give it to me. And the reason is probably because you ask amiss that you might consume it upon your lusts, your own desires. James says, we don't have because we don't ask. And then sometimes we don't we ask, but we don't receive because we ask for the wrong reason. We're not interested in in advancing the kingdom of God and fulfilling the will of God and and uh, seeing our own lives in obedience, serving the will of God. We're selfishly asking for that which gratifies me. And God says, "I'm not going to answer that prayer." The greatest. Here's, here's, a, here's a tremendous truth. The greatest of all needs in the human life is to be happy. Just think about that. The root of all your needs is happiness. And everything in life is designed and geared to that end. God Wants you to be happy. He said, well, if he wants me to be happy, why have I got all this trouble? Because he wants you to be happy. <laughs> and you got to get over self to do that. See, this is the pro- this is the issue. And God's goal in all that is to be glorified. See, here's the here's the point. He wants you to be happy. But in the same thing, the same time, he wants to be glorified. And some we say, well, how, why am I not happy? Because God's not being glorified. When he's glorified, you're going to be happy. I like John, what John Piper said on this. He said, the most precious truth in the Bible is that God's greatest interest is to glorify is to glorify the wealth of His grace by making sinners happy in Him. In Him. That's the point. Jeremy Taylor, the Puritan, said, God threatens terrible things if we will not be happy. I like that. God threatens terrible things if we will not be happy. Jonathan Edwards wrote, Resolved. This is one of his many resolves. Resolved to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the, in the other world as I, can, as I possibly can with all the power, might, vigor, vehemence, yes, violence I am capable of or can bring myself to exert in any way that can be thought of. Do you hear what he's saying here? He said, I'm determined to be happy. If I have to get violent to be happy. (laughs) So the hope of joy or happiness rests in seeking joy in the place where God is glorified. 
Jesus made that very clear that the place that that place is the believer's prayer life. Jesus said, "Whatever." Now listen to this. John 14 verse 13, "Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it, that the Father may be glorified in the Son." When the Father's glorified in the Son by the things that I ask him, you know what happens? I'm happy. John 16, verse 24, he said, Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. You have joy, but do you have fullness of joy? Is it full and overflowing? Wow. So the, these two goals... The glory of God and the joy of His children is clearly preserved in the act of right praying. Are you praying? So now, let's conclude. Verses 24 and 25, very briefly. The disciples had not asked anything in His name, expressed that His expressed desires that were related to their joy and to God's glory. However, when the Spirit came, they would begin to understand the Lord and His will on earth and their involvement was now declared. Ask. Fellas, ask. That's a command. Until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask. And you will receive that your joy may be full. The disciples then would experience joy in the age of joy about to commence. Do we live in the age of joy? We should, as believers. The rest of the world's not going to be happy, but we are. And the rest of the world seeking their happiness in anything but God, and they never really find their happiness, even in the things which they believe will make them happy. People are miserable while they're thinking while they're in the midst of, of the things that they think are making them happy. <laughs> but the people of God know what real joy really is. So the exhortation here to ask would result in their joy increasing to fullness as they understood God's will and prayed in Jesus' name, that is in his authority. You know, asking in Jesus' name is not using Jesus' name as a mantra, you know, as the magic word. Lord, I'm got, I, I've got these things, now I'm going to throw in the magic word that'll get it. In Jesus' name! <laughs> That's not what it means. It means in His authority. Which means, when you're asking, you better make sure that Jesus wants it. <laughs> that He's given you authority to ask for it. And so we read there in Psalm 21, verse 6, You make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. So, do we really pray? Are we experiencing the fullness of joy? Are we confident in our glorifying the Father? Are we getting the things we desire? Psalm 37, verse 4, Delight yourself in the Lord. And He will give you the desires of your heart.
Ah. Or Psalm 4, 5, verse, beginning with verse 5. Offer right sacrifices. Put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, Who will show us any good? Or some good. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord, His presence. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lay me down and sleep, for you alone make me to dwell in safety. Wow. Believe that? Or... Colossians chapter 1 verses 9 to 14. And so from the day we heard it, heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance with patience, with with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear Son in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. Does that characterize you? See, the great enemy of our prayer life and the great killer of joy is self. Self Self-indulgence. We find the things around us promise us greater joy than what God promises. And this is idolatry. When you find your joy in anything but Jesus Christ himself, you're an idol worshiper. And that's why John tells us when he closes... His first epistle, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray. Father, oh, that we may experience constantly the joy of the Lord. And we will if we walk in your paths and delight in you and bring glory to your name and find in you the satisfaction of all things. Lord, you are our Father. We take joy in our Father. And as we're going to read, Jesus made that clear. It's it's the Father who loves us. And it's the Father who sent His Son for us. And it's the Father who delights in us. And oh, that we might delight in Him through our Savior, the Lord Jesus. The joy of the Lord. Let it be our strength. And I pray for each one who's here. I pray if there's one here who does not know you. Father the spirit of God. Would awaken their hearts to the truth of Jesus Christ. That he. Alone is the savior. And that they might seek him. And long Lord to know. That they have a relationship with him as Savior and Lord of their lives. Lord, I pray, don't give them any rest until they find their rest in Thee. 
And Father, I pray for believers who struggle that they would learn how that Christ is the fullness of joy in them. Not self. Lord, you've, you've left us here to learn to walk. Lord, let us walk in the power of the Spirit, in the fullness of the Spirit. And we'll praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.